Okay, let's turn to the book of Revelation, shall we? Chapter 1 and 2. We're not looking at chapter 1 and 2, but that's where you're going to go to. Good to see the Mitchisons here this morning. You don't know who they are. I know who they are. God knows who they are. That's all that matters. Nice to see you. We've been uh, looking at the book of Revelation. We're up to our sixth As we've been seeing that God has, has written this book to a suffering church. He hasn't given this message to a people who are on top. He hasn't given this message to a people who are flourishing. He's given this message through John to a church that is undergoing persecution. And it's the whole aim of the book of Revelation is to give a suffering church, a new perspective on life. And for us today, the whole aim of the book of Revelation is to give us, in the middle of the lives we are living, a new perspective on life. Don't we need that? You know, our circumstances around us would try and, try and tell us what we should believe. Our circumstances around us should try and tell us how we should be reacting, how we should be emotionally how we should be responding. And yet we need to live lives which are above the circumstances. In the Old Testament, God said he wanted his people to be the head and not the tail. And yet we often live our lives like the tail, sort of dragged along. And Revelation, the whole aim of it is to lift our eyes above what we are seeing to what God sees. And so Revelation was given to help them to see that God has everything in control. And in our lives today, we need to understand God has everything in control. He reigns over everything now. And he will set up his reign over this earth in spite of all that mankind and the forces of darkness would do. Once again, we need to understand that, that God is in control. In your life, God is in control. Over your circumstances, God is in control. In your family, God is in control. Over your finances, God is in control. Regardless of what our eyes see, this is the value of the book of Revelation. We need it today, don't we? Really do. Often we get caught up in the, in, in, in the, in the beasts and the antichrists and the 666 and the, and the mark and all of that kind of thing. And yet that is not what Revelation is about. Revelation is about Jesus. It's the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about the King of kings and the Lord of lords who's, who, who died on the cross for us, who now rules and reigns over all. And he wants us to understand that we are to rule with him no matter what. So in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20, we saw that it's divided up into two bits. This is just a bit of an overview. First of all, a vision of the end-time church, so we get a picture of what the church is meant to be, verses 9 to 13, and then a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we said last week, it's rather interesting that Revelation starts with Jesus and finishes with Jesus, like a couple of bookends on a bookshelf. You have all the stuff in the middle, but it starts with Jesus, ends with Jesus. It's actually all about him. The stuff in the middle really doesn't matter. What, no matter what you do, the stuff in the middle is going to happen. Did you understand that? 
You can't control the stuff in the middle, but you can control the bookends. You can control who you focus on. You can control what Revelation teaches us. Now we're going to move on to chapter 2, but chapter 1 finishes with these words. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. There's a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 1, and, and he's standing in the middle of seven lampstands, and it seems really weird. Here's Jesus, and there's lampstands all around him. What's that all about? And then, then, he, then, then John is told, the lampstands are the churches. And I, Jesus, he said, what is going on in the church? I am standing in the midst, Jesus is saying. Whether there's chaos, or whether there's good things, I am standing in the midst. Jesus is standing in our midst this morning. He's standing in the midst of the lampstands, and the lampstands are the seven churches. And now we move into chapter 2. In chapter 2 and chapter 3, now there is a message to each one of those lampstands, to each one of those churches, specifically to them, but not just to them, but to us. They are representative of the church. Now, before we dive into these messages to these individual churches, we need to note several things. And that's what this message is going to be about this morning. These several things we need to note before we get into the messages themselves. First of all, the message is to churches, not individuals. In our society today, we take everything personally. Everything we take as an individual. Our salvation we take as an individual. And that's not the way it was given. The gospel came in the early church to the person and their household. It was always to a group. And this message is no different. Jesus is talking to the church, not just the individual. I'm not saying the individual is unimportant. I'm saying there is more than just the individual. There is the group. There is the people. There is the church. And the good news is always for a people, not just individuals. The gospel is for families, not individuals. Yes, individuals, but also the family. Do you know what I'm saying here? It's important we need to understand that. Sin has fragmented us. It's separated us. It's sentenced us to solitary confinement. And we were never born, never created to be solitary. We were never created to be alone. We were created to be in families. The gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, restores us into community. It takes us out of our solitary confinement and it puts us into a family. And as Christians, that's the first lesson we need to learn. It's not about me. It's about us. The good news of the Lord Jesus Christ is not just about you. It's about the people around you. And there are, there are forces at work in today's society to separate us. There's forces that want to come to church, don't you? Much easier to stay home than to come to church. It's much easier to stay in your nice warm bed than to get out into the cold and come along here. Isn't it? 
It's easier to go to sport than to come to church. It's easier to do various things, to, 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 to have other priorities. And yet those other priorities take us away from community. It's easier, but the connect group gets you back into community. And the good news is all about restoring us into community. Not making you a better individual, but making you better within the community. To cut ourselves off from the church is to live out of outside of God's best plan for you. of the Lord Jesus Christ when it came to John would be, John, cheer up, I'm with you. You know, you're stuck on an island all by your poor little self. Those nasty Romans have done mean and nasty things to you. John, I'm with you. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to lift you up. And yet he says, no, I've come to speak to the church. John, speak my message to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Smyrna, to the church in Pergamum. But John's thinking, what about me? See, it's not about me. It's about us. God's in the business of restoring us. That means building us into a community with people we don't necessarily like all the time. That means bringing us into relationship with people we don't always feel quite connected with. Different cultures, different age groups, different ways of doing things, different language, different food, different all sorts of stuff. God's into doing that stuff, taking different and bringing them together into one. So John's message in Revelation is not just for individuals, it's for the church. In these last days, God is building his church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Not I will build you as an individual, but I will build my church. God is in the business of building his church today. Church is important. Church gatherings are important. I remember, um, this isn't in my notes, but just came to my mind. I remember when um, my son was 12, told you this before probably, but he, he, was, he, was, he loved rugby, absolutely ru loved rugby, still does. His biggest complaint was he was my size. And in Auckland, the rugby players were all Samoan and Tongan, and they're four times my size. And uh, he, he, he struggled to, he, he was a, he was a a flank forward, and he struggled to get into the team because they were all like men and he was like a little boy. And uh, he used to blame me. He said, Dad, it's all your fault. <laughs> Never mind. And he used to say, well, well, at least your dad's got hair, so you know, you've got, you got to keep your hair. Anyway, he, uh, his big dream was to get into the first 15 at college. That was his big dream. I'll tell you about the end of that dream in a minute. But he, uh, anyway, at the age of 12, he got into, he got selected for the Roller Mills team, which is the West Auckland under 12 representative team. It's a big deal. And uh, 
even harder because the coach's kids normally got in first and then everybody else got second go at it. But he, he got selected for the Roller Mills team. And he came home and he said, oh, Dad, he said, I got in the team. I said, great. He said, there's one problem. I said, what's that? He said, all the practices and the games are on Sunday. And I was pastor of the local church. And here's the son. Practices and games are on Sunday. I was the transport for the team. And Annie and I talked about it. And we, said, we thought, you know, this is his big thing. What do we do? Do we say, oh, you can't? Now, if you do that, you're going to, it creates all sorts of other things within a 12-year-old boy who's just got his dream fulfilled. So I think God gave us wisdom. We said, Christopher, I said to Christopher, Chris, you can, you can go. You can be in the team, but I can't come. I can't come. I will, you know, you have to get your own transport there, but you can go. Oh, yeah, he went away. A week later, he must have thought about it quite a lot. A week later, he came back. He said, Dad, I'm not going to be in the team. I've decided I'm going to church on Sunday. The way our 12-year-old boy made that decision on his own, he was allowed to be in the team. And yet he made the decision that being in God's house was more important than having his dream. And I think, man, if a 12-year-old kid can make a decision like that, how much more can adults make that kind of decision, don't you reckon? The community, the church, is important. It's important we gather, because as we gather, God does things in the midst. As we gather, we become what God is causing us to become. And as the church becomes fragmented in these days, and it is, it's about people come to church about one and three now. How can we get things happening when it's one and three? How can you get continuity when it's one and three? I, I believe we need to swim upstream a bit as the church and start to put priorities where God does. I wasn't going to say it, but I've said it there. Done. Right, next thing. The second thing is that one, the thing it's, that's at stake is an issue of perspective. If you look at the letters to the churches in verse 2 and verse 3, uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3, carefully, you'll notice that each letter starts with Jesus introducing himself, but in a different way for each church. And if you look at the introduction of himself, it's, it's part of the picture we see of Jesus in chapter 1. Like in, Ephesus, in chapter 2, verse 1, of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven gold lampstands. That's from chapter 1. Go down to verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, these are the words who, of him who is the first and the last. That's from chapter 1. Go down to verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. That's from chapter 1. He's taking a little bit of the, of, the, of the picture that you see in chapter 1 and he's giving you that particular thing for this particular church because that's the particular part of Jesus they need to understand. Then in verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like a blazing fire and his feet like burnished bronze. Another part of the image in chapter 1. 
Chapter 3, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Sardis, right? These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. That's from chapter 1. Verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can, can open. That's a picture from Chapter 1, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea, verse 14, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Once again, another aspect of Jesus in chapter 1. What's going on here? It's perspective. God is, God is trying to get each church to see themselves in relationship to who Jesus is. We see ourselves in so many ways according to our, society, our, our circumstances, our attitude towards ourselves, other people's attitude towards us, our thinking about ourselves. But what God wants us to do is to begin to see ourselves as he sees us. Not just as he sees us, but as he is and as he sees us. He is first, then as he sees us should be how we respond and how we see ourselves. He wants each church and us to consider our situation in relationship to him. What's going on in your life right now? Where's Jesus in it? Where's Jesus in that circumstance you're having? Where's Jesus in that thing that you are feeling? Where is Jesus in the thing you are experiencing? What is he in it? What aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ do you, do you need in that situation right now? It's not how we see ourselves that matters, it's how Jesus sees us. An interesting comparison here of how Jesus actually sees people. If you go into these letters, the Christians at Smyrna were poor. They were living in poverty. And the Christians at Laodicea were very wealthy. Smyrna was a poor church. Laodicea was a wealthy church. Now let's hear how Jesus sees them. Smyrna is rich and Laodicea is poor. In the physical, Smyrna is poor, but in the spiritual, God says, you are rich. You're wealthy. And in the, in the natural, the Laodiceans are filthy rich and God says, you are in poverty. You're poor. You see, what we see and what God sees are sometimes opposite. And if we live our lives according to what we see, we're going to live defeated. We've got to begin to see what God sees in us. We've got to begin to see what God sees in our church. When he looks at Nations Church, what does he see? We see a building. We see paint done or not done. We see carpet clean or not clean. We see chairs nice or not nice. We see the physical. We see the external. What does God actually see? What does God see in us? What's his dream? What's his, his, his vision for us? That's what we need to catch a hold of. It's perspective. And our perspective has to come through his eyes, not our own. What does Jesus see in you and I? That's all that matters. It doesn't matter what people think of you. It's what God thinks of you. It doesn't matter what this world thinks of this church. It's what God thinks of this church that really matters. Third thing that we need to understand is these letters 
are for all churches at all times, not just churches 2,000 years ago. Look at verse 7 of chapter 2. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's writing to Ephesus, but he said, now, let all the churches listen. I'm not just talking to them, I'm talking to you. He's talking to us now. Each one of these letters is speaking to us. It has something that we need to catch hold of. It's not just history. It's reality for us today. Fourth thing we need to understand is that each letter finishes with a message like this. He who overcomes shall. He who overcomes shall. Whatever's going on in your life now, it's difficult, but if you overcome, this is the promise to you. Now that suggests to us two things. There's going to be things to overcome, and there's a responsibility to overcome. Stuff's going to happen, people. You work that out yet? Stuff's going to happen. Things happen in our lives. Things go well, things go badly. But we are not called just to endure. We are called to overcome. We are not called to be defeated. We are called to rise up. He, she who overcomes shall. And there's a promise to it. There's a reward for overcoming. And we'll look at each church in time. What were they meant to overcome? And what was the reward to them? And the fifth thing we need to understand in each of these letters is is each church, Jesus says to them, I know. I know. He says in verse 2, I know your deeds. In verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty. (laughs) Verse 13, I know where you live. I know. Do you know what that tells us? God knows everything about you. Jesus is standing in the middle of his church and he knows us intimately. That's either a good thought or a bad thought, depending on what you're doing right now. But regardless, he knows about it. I've started telling God the things I do badly because he already knows. Waste of time trying to hide, play the silly hide-and-seek game. You might as well just have a chat about it because he already knows about it. I know. I know what you're going through. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're feeling. I know what you're experiencing. I know the situation you're in. I know what is coming against you. I know. The kind of prayer that says, oh God, if you only knew what I was going through is so silly. He knows. He knows. Oh God, I'm so lonely. I know. Oh, I feel forsaken. I know. And it's not an I know that's a negative I know. It's a positive I know. He knows and he understands. He's right in the middle of it with you. I will never leave you or forsake you, I know. He knows who we are, he knows where we're at, and he knows us better than we know ourselves. And what's more, he knows what you're going to do in an hour's time. He knows what you're going to do tomorrow, and he knows what you're thinking, and he knows what you're going to do with what you're thinking. 
Peter said to Jesus, Jesus, I, they might all leave you, but I'll never leave you. And, Peter, and Jesus said, you're going to even deny you knew me. I'd never do that, Lord. Yeah, you're going to. No, 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 not me. Yeah, you. In fact, the rooster's only got to crow three times and it's all going to be over and done. It's going to be the way it is, Peter, but you're going to return also. When you return, strengthen your brothers. He knows intimately. So let's look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 7 now. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These are the words of him, who, of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have not grown weary, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We're not going to get through that this morning, just letting you know. But just by way of introduction, who is this church of Ephesus? What were they? Ephesus was an important church in early church history. It was one of the few large ones. It was probably the mega church of the first century, if there was such a thing. Paul spent nearly a year there establishing it. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see Paul was there for quite some time, and there was an amazing revival while Paul was there. In fact, so many people were saved out of witchcraft, they brought all their books, and there were millions of dollars worth of books that they, they burnt there in that great big Holy Ghost bonfire that they had. It was an amazing revival. It got Paul half beaten to death, by the way. Now they've been a church for about 40 years. Ephesus was one of the great cities of the ancient world in every way. It's trade, it's travel, it's politics, it re it's religion. It was a big seaport. And it had one of the seven wonders of the world in it. The Temple of Diana. Or Artemis. Diana or Artemis was a Greek female de deity. And there was this huge temple in her honor in the city. It just was on the top of the hill presiding over the whole city. We won't go into what they did there. And the church in, in this place of Ephesus, even though there was a demonic stronghold in the city, this church was the most influential in the world at the end of the first century. And yet Jesus says to this church, I'm about to take your lampstand out of its place. Quite a warning. We'll see why next time. In verse 1, he says, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know your deeds. As we saw last time, he holds the seven stars in his hand. Jesus is in total authority in this church. The angels that preside over this church, they are directed and they are under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And interestingly, he's not just standing amongst the lampstands, he's walking there. 
He's not stationary. He's not static. He's active amongst the lampstands. He says, I walk among the lampstands. Jesus is intimately connected with each church. He walks around. He knows what's going on. He knows what's going on at 12 o'clock out in the Iwi room, young adults. He walks out there. He knows what's going on in the children's program. Right now, he's walking out there. He knows what's going on amongst the seats. He's walking there. He walks amongst the lampstands. He's moving. He's working. He's amongst us all the time. He knows everything. Sorry, he's intimately connected with everything that's going on. And he said, not only do I walk amongst you, I know your deeds. (laughs) He knows everything. He knows what we do and he knows what we don't do. He knows you forgot to bring the can of stuff to put in the pantry this morning. (laughs) He knows it's still sitting on the freezer. He knows why we do things. You know, people... He knows our failures. He knows our successes. Nothing's hidden from him. Absolutely nothing. You can fool me. You can fool Eric. You can even fool Annie. And I tell you, that's pretty hard. (laughs) But you can't fool Jesus. He knows. He still likes you too, what's more. But he knows. He says, I know, not just you, I know your deeds. That word deeds is a, is, a, is a common thread right through Revelation. The word deeds comes up over and over and over again. It describes good things, it describes bad things, and it describes unfinished things, incomplete things. And interestingly enough, about the word, the word deeds, it becomes the basis for future judgment and reward for the, for the saved. Now we're going to get uncomfortable. What we do matters. What we do does not get you saved. But what we do matters once you're saved. See, there's a... uh, There's a theological perspective going around at the moment called grace. It's truth. We are saved by grace. You can't do anything to get saved. You're saved by the the free will favor of God. But there's another side to grace, and that's our responsibility. Once we have been saved by grace, what do we do with it? We're responsible to be walking in obedience to the Word of God. Not living under the law, but because of your grace, God, I choose to live my life according to your will. We, ha- we struggle with that. We want it all grace. Oh, I just do what I like. I'll just have a great time, do what I like, and I'll get into heaven. See ya. That's not quite what it's like. Someone will hurt me And the word of God will say to me, you forgive them. And my everything within me will say, why? It was their fault. 
they deserve what I'm about to do to them. And the word of God says, but I say to you, forgive them. Is that comfortable? Is that pleasant? Is that what we want to hear? All of the answers to both are no, whether you answered or not. The truth is, Jesus saved us, set us free, so that we could begin to walk according to his truth, according to his word. So we're not living by law. We are responding in a free will fashion to grace. That's the balance. And in Revelation, we have the other side of that balance, is that there are churches who were not, their deeds were not good. They were not responding to, the, to grace the way they should have been responding. And Jesus is saying to them, because of your deeds, this is going to happen to you unless you repent. And the Ephesus church, which you're going to find out next time, they're, 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 what Jesus was saying to them was, unless you repent, you will no longer exist. Anyone been to Ephesus lately? I want you to know there's no church there. Not one. Isn't that sad? What does that tell you they didn't do? Repent. They didn't do anything about the deeds that he was seeing. And as a result, judgment came upon that church. The greatest church of the time and yet there was no church in South Dunedin then that there is now. In fact, you'd struggle to find a Christian in Ephesus now. What we do matters. Think of the parable of the talents. Jesus said the kingdom of God is like this. A man went on a journey and he gave his servants various amounts of money. To one he gave this, to one he gave that, to one he gave the other, and he said, trade with it until I come back. And we read that one of them went out and made five more, and one made two more. One took his talent of gold or whatever it was and hid it in the ground. Didn't want, couldn't be bothered doing anything with it. The master had said, go and trade with it, and he didn't do as he was told. He lived in disobedience rather than obedience. The master came back, and he, there was an accounting Oh. Oh. You mean there's an audit? Do you know you're going to be audited? Accountants won't audit us anymore, but God's going to audit you and us. And at the audit, the master says, Okay, man who had five, what have you got now? He says, I've got ten. He said, Well done, good and faithful servant. And he comes to the one with two. He says, what about you? He says, I've now got four. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You just did what I said to do. The amount they had wasn't important. It's they did what he said to do. And then the last one, he says, okay, what about you? He says, I was scared stiff. I, th I think you're a meanie. And because I thought such, you were such a meanie, I, I, just, I, just, I just had fear. So I just, I just hid mine in the ground. And he said, you wicked servant. And he took it off him and he gave it to the one who had ten. And he sends him out. His lampstand was taken out of its place. You see, 
The story of the talents is Jesus saying, people, there's going to be an accounting. There's going to be an auditing for what we do with what we've been given. I know this sounds negative, but it's not negative. It's actually incredibly positive because there's a reward (laughs) if we do what we're supposed to be doing. I prefer to think about the reward. Don't you? See, the gospel of grace is all about our unconditional acceptance. On the cross, you are unconditionally accepted by God because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot do anything about your salvation except receive what Jesus has done for you on the cross. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't do things to gain it. Salvation is free. It's the only thing on this planet. It's the only free lunch you're ever going to get. It's salvation. Your acceptance by God is free. You can't earn it, you just got to take it. But once you've taken it, then there's a responsibility, as I said before, to do something with it. That's the flip side. As Christians, therefore, we have a responsibility to live. Live according to the way God wants us to live. We cannot live as we like. Nations, hear me. We cannot live as we like. We live to please Him. We have a responsibility to live godly lives, to live out our Christianity through obedience to His Word. It doesn't save us, but it's our responsibility as God's kids. That's what Revelation teaches us. Because if we ever get to the end of the book before I die, (laughs) you'll find there's a reward for those who are faithful There's a reward for those who who overcome, who endure, who persevere. But he says unto each one of these churches, there's also a loss if you don't. So Revelation is written to churches. We're called into community. We're finishing. Two minutes, we're out the door. Revelation is written to give us perspective, God's perspective on our lives. Man, we need it. About time we saw what Jesus thinks instead of what people think. Revelation's message is universal. It's for all churches of all times. It's not just for a church 2,000 years ago. The same message applies to us today. Don't worry, Nick, by the time you're ready, I'll be gone. We're called to overcome in life. That's the message of Revelation. It's written to a church or to churches that need to know how to overcome, just like we do. And the book of Revelation teaches us that Jesus knows us intimately. He knows you. You can't pull the wool over his eyes. He knows. And the last thing Revelation teaches us is what we do matters. Your life matters. The way you live it matters. It's a strange paradox, isn't it? I'm free, but I'm not free. (laughs) I am free from all that was holding me in bondage, and I've surrendered my life and ownership to him. 
So I'm no longer free to live my life as I please. I am free from the devil. I am free from the things of the past. I'm free from the things that destroy me. I'm free from the things that pull me down. And now I am shackled to him. I'm his love slave. I live to serve him. I'm not even free to live where I want to live. I live to serve him. And when he says to me, Peter, this is what I want from you, that's what happens. What a glorious way to live. I don't have to worry about the future anymore. Hey? I don't have to worry if I've got enough superannuation or not. I don't have to worry about this, that, or the other thing. I'm free to serve him all my life. And the reward is glorious. That is the book of Revelation. The revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died to set you free so that you might live forever for him. And in living for him, live in victory. Isn't that good news? I reckon it is. We'll look at the church of Ephesus next time. Father, I just thank you for your blessing upon us. I thank you for your word, which is life-giving but challenging. I thank you, Father, that you don't leave us the way we are, but you uh, suggest that we get better. And you give us the strength and the ability to get better. Lord, you, you give us life, and we thank you for that. And Father, we just pray for ourselves right now. I pray for every person in this room. Father God, I just pray that we would know your life, your power to overcome whatever it is in our lives that needs to be overcome. And Father God, I pray that we would have that challenge upon us to live our lives according to your will and your call every day. In Jesus' wonderful name.